Alright everyone, and thank you for tuning in to another really, really exciting episode of Destiny Geekhood. So, today we're talking zombies, and I'd love to introduce my good friend and actually fellow expert in this, Taylor. Want to say hello to everyone? Hey guys, thank you for joining us once again. We are both extremely excited that we chose this as our Halloween special. Technically, this is our second one because we did do the vampire one last time, but we're going to excuse that and we're going to make it up with this one. Absolutely. This is definitely one that is much, much nearer and dearer to our hearts and on a pretty equal playing field. So there's going to be a little bit more back and forth, which I'm actually really looking forward to. So we'll kick things off with something that most fans like to do. Let's effectively size up each other's cannons. This basically means is that the funny thing about us with zombies is that we have entirely different views on zombies and zombie lore, which is actually pretty damn hilarious. Me, personally, I'm all for the supernatural zombie. I am completely in favor of the one that just sort of appears, happens spontaneously. There's no weird pathogen that goes around in the air. It's an odd supernatural event. It's a freak supernatural event. And that adds, to me personally, the power and awesomeness of the zombie. See, and the me, on the other hand, I am very much the science zombie. I'm very much the biological weapon, the virus that takes over and causes the apocalypse. Because to me, that gives the zombie more of, I guess, a weakness versus if you've got some reanimated corpse that you don't know really how to deal with. I personally would like a world where I know what I'm dealing with versus something that just happened to come out of the ground. <laughs> I think we'd all love that to our own special extent. Definitely. We're going to do, actually, we're actually going to have a lot of fun with this. So let's go into a little bit of background. Zombie history, if we go back, is almost kind of similar to the vampire history, probably up until the 1500s. That's where we start getting the difference between vampire and zombie. Now, history and cultural mythos are t absolutely full with so many different examples of the zombie but here's a, few notice, here's a few notable ones. And one of my absolute favorites, hailing from Scandinavia, the Draugr. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with the Draugr, think of the best Viking berserker and then bring him back as a reanimated corpse that retains all of their intelligence, all of their past information, and absolutely can become an undead slaughter machine. I think the Draugr is personally one of the scarier versions of the zombie, because it is, in fact, still mainly sentient. Another super exciting example, and probably where we start getting more of our actual zombie lore, hailing from England and um, English mythos, is the Revenant. And that's more of the classic kind of meandering walker-type zombie that is just a corpse that rose from the ground. They're here to prey on the living. But you can probably outpace them if you really, really tried. And now... The truer foundation for most zombie mythos is the Haitian zombie. Fun fact, the word zombie actually comes from an African word, nzambe, and the Haitian zombie comes from the practice of voodoo. And basically, the way you get a zombie in Haitian voodoo is by a curse. Now, weird thing is, science actually discovered in the 1960s that people who claimed to control zombies or be zombies actually were suffering from a true biological illness. 
Funny thing is, zombie masters, quote-unquote, in Haiti have been able to isolate a very, very rare and potent elixir distilled from a puffer fish, which can act as a paralytic, slow a patient's heart rate down, and then they can bring them back to life, quote-unquote, and let them work as a mindless, you know, human slave for an extended period of time. It's pretty crazy, because there's actually a ton of reports of people waking up in their coffins, and it started a pretty severe and interesting panic. But from that, those two, the Revenant and the Haitian zombie, is where we pretty much get the bulk of our zombie mythos. And then, of course, what would any zombie show be without talking about Night of the Living Dead? Not just Night of the Living Dead, but George A. Romero himself. I mean, we can't do this show without discussing him. I mean, he is the father of all zombie flicks. Now, Night of the Living Dead was his first one, and it came out in October of 1968. It was a black-and-white film, first of its kind. Basically, the general basis of it is that there's this group of people that are basically on this farm hiding from these zombies that come out of nowhere. Now, the zombies in this one are actually called ghouls, which we'll get into that argument a little later. These are actually created by, like, radiation that comes from satellites, which is, I have to say, probably the first and only time that's ever been done. Probably. This is what gave us a lot of what we know as far as zombies. And it started out with this, and then we got many, many more movies, including The Crazies, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, all these movies. And a lot of these movies have actually been redone recently. So we definitely suggest that everybody go and kind of check them out. I think one of the coolest things is, and this is the nerd in me, but if anyone ever plays Call of Duty Black Ops Zombie Mode, the first one, there's a DLC where you actually have to fight a giant zombie version of George A. Romero. And the fun part of it is you get to play between Sarah Michelle Gellar, who's Buffy, the guy that played Freddy Krueger, and probably Amanda's favorite, Danny Trejo. Oh, machete! Pretty much. But after Night of the Living Dead and the whole George A. Romero thing, we don't really see a lot. Zombies kind of disappear for a while. And not even disappear. There's definitely some room where they pepper it in, but there were nothing that was notable or a huge pop culture phenomenon. Definitely. But that's when we get into what we know as zombies today. And so the way that we're going to continue now is we're going to break them into subcategories of basically the science that's gone wrong, the mythical supernatural zombie, and even the zombies that make you sit there and go, wait, what are you again? How did you come to be? <laughs> so my personal favorite where we get it is Resident Evil. Now, first off, let me correct by saying I am not talking about the Mila Jovovich horror movie series. I am talking about Resident Evil, also known as Biohazard in Japan, which was released in 1996, which we get the stars team trying to save their other teammates and end up trapped in this mansion full of biological weapons, also known as BOWs. And this is one of the first instances where we get a virus that causes it. And it starts with the progenitor virus, which gives us the T-virus, which we're all well known for. The T-virus is known as the tyrant virus, which is what turns everything into basically a killing machine. And that's where we get our zombies that we all know and love from that series. And then we're introduced to the G-virus, which is uh, another version of it, which gives regenerative abilities, which basically can grant any infectee basically immortal, which we get some of the scariest creatures ever, including... William Birkin, who becomes the mascot for Resident Evil 2. And that's not even the scariest part. Is we start getting to like the Veronica virus and the C virus from the new game, which is basically allows kind of a drogger experience. 
When used correctly, you not only get this bloodthirsty creature that feasts upon human flesh, but you also get they retain a good portion of their intelligence, which, as I may have stated, is absolutely terrifying to imagine. You've got this thing coming at you, but it still knows what it's doing. It knows who it is. Some more recent ones we have Left for Dead, which was a very popular Valve game. It's really unstated how the outbreak happens, because the game starts two weeks later, but it can be spread through Boomer Bile, which will actually attract more zombies, the acid of a spitter, or if you inhale the smoke of a smoker, which these are actual names, I'm not making these up. One of the more recent versions of science going wrong, which is actually a more or less Mother Nature kind of thing, is the new game The Last of Us. I could go into how much I don't like this game, but it does give us a great example of how things kind of go awry. We get this thing that's actually found in um, nature called a cordyceps fungus, which normally only infects insects. So in this game, you get the transference to humans, which is very uncommon, and you get the cordyceps brain infection. And in September 2013, 60% of the human population has basically either become infected or has been killed by this thing. And nobody knows how to deal with it, which sends the world into this post-apocalyptic martial law type of thing. Which is, I mean, it's terrifying, to be honest, because you get some fungus takes over and creates these things called clickers and other zombies. And infection takes one to two days, which, I don't know about you, but if I know I'm infected, I have at least, like, a little bit of time to live my life a little longer, not just one or two days. Yeah, I definitely love a little bit more time to kind of, you know, wrap things up on Earth before it's, boom, mindless death machine. And I think one of the more popular examples that we get... When it comes to science, it, actually science trying to do something good is 28 days later. Basically, you have these two Cambridge scientists that are hired to try and isolate neurochemicals that cause basically anger in humans. We've all been there, those random outbursts of anger, but their job is to sit there and go, no, we want to help regulate that to bring down domestic violence and stuff like that. So once they find the, these neurochemicals, they decide to use the Ebola virus to, as a delivery system and unfortunately, within two weeks of releasing it, a genome inside of it mutates, and we get what's called the rage virus, which creates those terrifying creatures in 28 days later. Now, here's something crazy. This might be one of the only examples of science gone wrong that I'm actually okay with. How many quarters did we spend on the House of Dead franchise? That's a good question. I mean, that was our arcade game back in the day. And to think about the pure terror that came with that, I mean... House of Dead was one of those ones that we're always still a little hazy exactly how we got zombies, but we do know that we have them, that it was biological, and for the love of God, shake the plastic gun until you have enough ammo to destroy whatever is in front of you. Exactly. I mean, as far as first-person shooters go, that's just... Next thing you know, you're shooting zombies' heads, and you're out of ammo, and like she said, shake that little plastic gun, otherwise... You're done for. I mean, I really feel like they owe us something considering how much of our time and money we spent on that franchise. But, again, it's probably one of the only examples of the science gone awry zombie that I can hang with. But, you know, science isn't the only way. I mean, like you said, Amanda, Supernatural's your favorite, so why don't you enlighten us a little bit? Oh, man. Okay, so the Supernatural one might be my favorite, but let me go ahead and just air this out. The causes and reasons for the supernatural zombies sometimes are absolutely ridiculous. I'm just going to go ahead and say I'm sorry for that. But I like the supernatural zombie because it sort of reinstates a little bit more of that chaotic fear because you don't exactly know who's going to become a zombie. You don't exactly know why. You just know it's coming. So 
let's go ahead and show my nerdy colors. One of my favorite examples of this is the Black Lantern Corps. So, honestly, think about it. Some of the worst villains that ever existed in that entire universe. Let's bring them back as zombies. Oh my freaking gosh. Not even that, but you've also got heroes that have died and have come back and have decided to work for Necron, who brings them all back. And you get this really, really interesting sort of power play when it comes to that. I think it's one of my favorite examples just because of the pure amount of chaos and destruction that is caused by being able to have the power to raise the dead and make them fight for you. And, by the way, you had me at KG Beast. I was glad to see him come back. See, and we're not talking, you know, some happy little O in Blackest Day and Blackest Night. No, these are terrifying beings. Like, literally, imagine you're a superhero and you've watched your comrades die left and right. And next thing you know, you turn around and there they are. And you're like, oh my god, they're back. But then they rip your heart out. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly how it is summed up. And I'll go ahead and say... It's probably one of the nicest drawn zombie I've ever seen. Like, really, really top-notch. Because, let's be honest, people sometimes do get a little lazy when it comes to drawing the undead. Speaking of lazy when it comes to drawing the undead, Castlevania. Now, this is sort of the franchise that, especially as an anime fan, I love to hate. But they do bring up a good point, and it's one of my favorite parts of the whole mythos when it comes to the undead is they sort of bring back the zombie as the creature that no one else in the undead pantheon likes to mess with. While vampires pretty much can own werewolves and ghouls, zombies are the ones that the vampire looks from the top of his castle and is like, no, that needs to stay out. And I think anything that has that power is something that's definitely worth fearing and being aware of. Now, they don't exactly always play a huge role, but they're huge obstacles sometimes when your goal is to get to Alucard. But because of that, it does sort of leave the ambiguous again. No one quite knows exactly why supernaturally the dead rose and decided to feed upon the living, or in case even sometimes the undead, which we'll talk about later. It just sort of happened, which the intrigue makes it all the more interesting. Basically, all you need to know is that Alucard and Dracula are sitting there going, nope, they cannot come to the barbecue. Yeah, that's pretty much exactly what's going on. I mean, if you can imagine a ghoul or a werewolf saying, Master Alucard, there are zombies outside, and Alucard, like, shutting the blinds. That's pretty much what happens. And that tells you something. If Alucard himself is kind of afraid of the zombie, we as mere mortals probably should tremble in fear. Except for that Belmont brat. Apparently he has it all together. Well, that's another show for another time. So moving on from that, we've got more or less the zombie that we're not sure where exactly it came from. And not in the form of it just rose from the ground or something like that. Like, we have absolutely no idea where this thing spawned from. One of the most recent examples ever is the TV show and comic book series The Walking Dead. Oh gosh, yeah. Because <laughs> you, you have this protagonist who just wakes up and there's zombies everywhere and it it doesn't really get explained until a couple of issues and episodes in when you find out that it, it's something that's already inside of us there was no virus release into the world there was no Haitian man hiding behind a tree with puffer fish venom this is something that's already inside of us and one of the main examples that you see is when rick kills shane who's gone crazy from the apocalypse 
and we will totally talk about that later. He shoots him in the head. Well, actually, no, his son shoots him in the head, and Shane instantly comes back because it's already inside of him. He was not. It had nothing to do with being bitten or anything like that. It's a matter of the fact of there's nothing you can do. It's going to happen. Yeah, I have a hard time with that. Again, I don't like the idea of this just sort of already being inside of us. At least with the supernatural, you can kind of take some of the pressure off of humans. But speaking of that, we're probably going to go into one of my least favorite, simultaneously favorite examples of the what the fuck zombie. So for anime fans out there, the anime Samurai Champloo has at least one episode that features a very, very interesting sort of zombie-like cast of minions played by one very, very eccentric stargazer. Now, understand that they're very, very coy and shy with trying to mention that they're zombies, and they actually do have a reason as to why these men are zombies. Story goes that they're actually a group of workers that has been contracted by this, again, very, very eccentric stargazer. The problem is, they're about 200 years old and probably way, way super dead. The key to their regenerative powers and immortality is the fact they've been munching on wasabi root for the last 200 years. Keep that in mind, guys, next time that you go get your sushi. You could turn into a zombie. Yeah, apparently it'll keep you alive forever and then make you an undead slave. That's what wasabi does. Now, please understand the existential crisis I had at the end of this episode. I think I called at least three people in, like, a dry, sad cry trying to figure out how the hell wasabi turns a person into a zombie. But it is a preservative. And I guess by preservative, they mean preservative of people. This is no by means, those of us telling any of you out there seeking immortality, go start eating wasabi. Because if you start the apocalypse, we will, we will find you. Yeah, I'm CDC certified to lead a zombie apocalypse survival team, and wasabi zombies, not the way I'm going down. Another fun example that we get is Adventure Time. I believe it's the first episode, isn't it, when we first get these evil candy zombies? Yeah, Princess Bubblegum is working on a decorpsinator serum, and it's almost perfect. Keep in mind the heavy emphasis on almost. It certainly does bring the dead back, but it doesn't bring them back the way she wanted. Now, we actually faced this a couple of times with Adventure Time, and each time, again, though the answer is pretty obvious, it's still kind of weird. I, I love Adventure Time, but I always still struggle with the idea of sentient candy, and then candy dying, and then candy coming back to life. <laughs> well, uh, we've contacted Princess Bubblegum for a quote, and I'm sure she will get back to us on the morrow. You mean her bird? Yes, her bird. Scree. Fantastic. Now, this last one's a little controversial, so I'll go ahead and lead up. For any of you who watch Generator Rex, I'm probably the only one. I'm sorry. Generator Rex had a very, very similar type event. Now, I'm not saying it's the same, but it's similar. So basically what happened with Generator Rex is there's this big nanite event. And nanites are these little crazy kind of synthetic adaptable nanobots and it happens there's this huge event and it wipes out a bunch of people and by wipe out i mean mutates them and they become evos now rex is the only person who took the nanite event and now can then take his powers override the bad nanites in the evos and then effectively cure them 
That sounds a little bit supernatural zombie-like to me. Again, it's not exactly the same. But anytime you have an event that shakes the world and people are being affected and or mutated by something and there's only one savior, gotta say, it has the makings of a really, really bad zombie rom-com. I, I honestly think he's just a show-off. He probably took out the other competition and decided to say he was the only one. But that's my opinion. Yeah, I wish that I had enough faith in Rex as a main character to say that. I just couldn't help but notice the parallel. So as we dive deeper into mythos and things like that, there's a little bit of confusion between the zombie versus another creature. And the other creature we're talking about is the ghoul. Oh my gosh. I mean, the ghoul classically actually is... um. It's a Middle Eastern Arabian myth, and it's just, it's a woman, usually a prostitute, whose spirit is hungry, and she's like a siren of the desert, and she's just there to lure men in, often with a song or with an enticing show of body, and then, you know, rip them in half and eat their flesh. But somehow, over time, the ghoul has kind of transformed into an undead, usually kind of pieced together, haphazard creature, which to the untrained eye, looks an awful lot like a zombie. Now, the key difference for the more modern-ish version of the ghoul versus the zombie is the pretty key linchpin of sentience. Most ghouls are pretty aware of what they're doing. Also keep in mind, remember, for us classicists, the ghoul is the effective Igor to most vampires or high-ranking demons. So they kind of have to know what they're doing if they're playing, you know butler quasimodo another thing that we discussed was a ghoul is usually working for someone either directly or indirectly because a ghoul can be controlled versus as a zombie once a zombie's made and he's out there there's a high chance you're never going to get him back yeah and even if you try it's going to be really really interesting so one of our favorite examples of kind of talking about that was for any of you old school inuyasha fans the band of seven now, Band of Seven were thieves that existed in whatever magic feudal Japan Inuyasha existed in, but they all died, as bands of thieves often do. That's right, Robin Hood, we're coming after ya. So, Naraku, of course, main super special amazing villain of Inuyasha, I'm sure you all now know where my, you know, allegiance ties, decides, I'm going to bring back the Band of Seven. They can help me move forward with my goals and my plans. So Naraku does this, because he's Naraku, and he can do that. One problem, Band of Sevens, as, upon their resurrection, was sort of, Hey, we're alive again. Cool. Let's mess some stuff up. They don't exactly listen, and Naraku was already pretty vague on direction. So they sort of just became these pretty much resurrected or ghoulish creatures that aren't quite zombies, they're definitely not falling apart or anything, but definitely aren't alive. They're not alive in the traditional sense. So it left a pretty crazy kind of weird gray area. Definitely. I mean, I barely remember this in the Band of Seven. If I'm going to be honest, most of what I remember from Inuyasha is the girl who overcame time and the boy who was just overcome. Why you have to do that? Yeah, don't swim. We, we have some words for you, but we'll discuss that later. That's a way another episode. And speaking of Grey, is there a better transition into Solomon Grundy? <laughs> I don't think so. And this one was a difficult one for us because we had to think. For those of you who don't know, Solomon Grundy is, he's usually described as a villain, but he's more of an anti-hero. He's not really all there. 
But he was this man who was killed and resurrected. He's resurrected multiple times throughout comic books, usually to bid the aids of other people. Now, I'm not going to go into the whole Solomon Grundy Born on a Monday poem. If you're really interested, you could Google it. But he's a pretty fearsome creature. I mean, we're talking like six to seven feet tall, completely gray, impervious to pain, not the smartest thing. He's kind of, I get, Amanda, would you say kind of the Hulk of the DC universe? I mean, he's a very, very derptastic Hulk. And I think that's what made him so scary, is that you have this creature who isn't altogether there, but can definitely rip you in half. But the other interesting parallel to Solomon Grundy was that even though he often plays anti-hero, he's often sort of the minion to someone else. So like, the brain, or occasionally Brother Blood, or anyone else who could somehow manage to find and or control him. He's usually playing second fiddle to someone. There are very, very few capers that are run by Solomon Grundy. But the good, cool thing about Solomon Grundy is, we kind of see he does have a softer side. He does retain some of his human qualities from, I think he was from colonial times or something like that. This, that right there is what gave us the idea of Solomon Grundy is much more ghoul than he is zombie. Yeah, I think the minion part of him was kind of what sealed the fate. Because he's actually surprisingly pretty easy to control, apparently. I know Morgan Le Fay's done it a handful of times. I mean, the list of people who have worked with Solomon Grundy is actually pretty fudge and expansive. Pretty much. And while we're on the topic of Morgan Le Fay, I think we should kind of discuss zombies versus necromancy. What, what do you think, Amanda? You know, I think that's such a weird thing. Because to most, the zombie is a force that really can't be controlled but especially for me the supernatural zombie and going back to the Haitian zombie ideally it is something that you have that should be a force that you should be able to wield now necromancy is kind of weird because most zombies are sort of well to put it lightly decomposing reanimated corpses most necromancers can bring back people with a fair amount of precision and they look pretty decent most of the time Definitely not the lumbering, backwards foot, dragging, moany zombie that we're accustomed to. So it begs the question of the very, very fine difference between resurrection and reanimation and all that stuff, which honestly kind of hurt both of our heads talking about. Yeah, I mean, we have to take the time to at least congratulate or mention some of our favorite necromancers. I mean, you've got Felix Faust from DC Comics. Apparently Constantine dabbled in necromancy, but tell me something he didn't dibble and dabble in. Ah. Um, you know, you've got Zatanna, but hers was mostly ghosts. Um, one of my favorite is Liliana Vest from Magic the Gathering, who actually, her sole power is to reanimate the dead. Let's see, my favorite necromancer, I'm sorry, I have to go Clarion the Witch Boy. I'm sure I'm going to get a bunch of hate mail for that one later. Oh, I'm sure their baby magic won't hold up against you. I certainly hope not, but come on, you gotta have a soft spot for a kid perpetually holding a cat and is willing to destroy the universe because he can't get a milkshake. Wait, are we talking about Clarion or are we back on the subject of you? I'm gonna need you to back up. So, obviously, we've discussed the basis of the zombie. We've discussed his cousin, the ghoul. We've discovered the fact that Alucard is sitting up in his window giving them the bird, saying, nope. Yeah... And it's actually, since we did decide to open this up, we actually got a couple interesting things to kind of throw back and forth. So, I'll actually, if I'm allowed the pun, still fresh on the topic. That's one, right? You're, you're not doing as well tonight as usual. You know, it's, 
I'm actually a little afraid of the zombie, but we'll get into that in just a minute. The question I received from a very, very good friend of mine was, if a zombie ingests the brains of another zombie, did they regain some of their intelligence? Now, for me as a supernaturalist, I'm probably likely to say no, only because it's like, why don't vampires feed from vampires? It's it's not food. But if you have more of these kind of, you know, ghoulish, necromancy kind of draugr type zombies, I don't quite think it's necessarily maybe the act of eating the brain as it is maybe the act of consuming another spiritual force that's in your path and then collecting their, you know, mana, hit points, experience points, you know, whatever. And then you've got me who says, holy crap, I sure fucking hope not. (laughs) Because a zombie is scary on its own, but then you get a zombie that's feasting upon another zombie and then becomes more intelligent. No, thank you, check please, I'm hanging out with Alucard upstairs. But in my point of view, I'm kind of with Amanda. Why is a zombie feasting upon another zombie? There's no nutrients there. That's why they go after the living, such as a vampire goes after the living because of the plasma in their blood. At that point, they would just start decomposing and dying, wouldn't you say? Well, re-dying. <laughs> re-dying. I just, I don't imagine if the lust is for flesh and blood that they would go after something that's already dead. So, but it was an interesting question. If I'm allowed, it did sort of make me scratch my head. Uh, anyways, the question that I received was, how do we feel about the transformation process? And of course, to, like... How long do we usually say it takes? Now, I think there are a couple of key factors that you have to take into before you can officially say that. First off, I feel like somebody who's in better health and more athletic is probably going to survive a little longer. Same with someone who is obviously not of great health, probably going to die faster. But are we talking about a virus that instantly takes over a host, or do you have to die first? Yeah, that's an interesting question to me. I gotta say, again, it's one of those just weird sort of things. To me personally, I think that it's probably a pretty slow process, but it has to happen after death. That's the whole point. I mean, a person dobbing on another person is a cannibal. It's not a zombie. But I imagine more notable examples have it at a couple days, a couple hours, a couple weeks, a couple years. But most notably, always after death. People say, you know, commonly that the, you know, the story of a person ends at death. The story, that's where the story of the zombie begins. It has to somehow collate and go back to the person is dead. They're undead. At the core of it, biological or supernatural, it is a reanimated corpse. Not a person who decided that another person was like an in and out burger. Keep in mind that contaminated burgers is what started Zombieland. Ugh. I mean, that freaks me out, because we have real examples of that. And that's probably one of the more interesting things about the zombie lore, is we have things like that. It's called Mad Cow. And that's one of the more interesting and weird aspects of zombie lore, is that this exists. There are cases of cannibals that have eaten others, and they get these crazy little amoebas in their brains, and they start deteriorating, and they become zombie-like. 
it's really, really crazy. I think that just adds to the terror that is the zombie, is not only do we have this in our myth and in our folklore, we have very, very interesting and weird medical re- examples of this stuff kind of, sort of, happening. And I think that's a great transition into our next topic of the actual zombie apocalypse. Oh my gosh. I mean, I could not think of a worse way to go out. And I mean, and I say that I took the CDC course. I don't know if any of you guys remember when the CDC was saying, you know, sign up to be a zombie apocalypse team leader. And I mean, you learn a lot of really, really cool stuff that's like good to know in case of another natural disaster, like, you know, fire, hurricane, tornado. But it really makes you think, how prepared are we to face something like this? Now, please understand that we're the last people to consider that a zombie plague is coming, especially considering the current pattern of the world. We already pretty much seem like we're in end times, so we don't want to inflate this any more than it already is. We're pretty much assuming altogether that this is a fictional, made-up thing. But if it had to be real, I gotta say, me personally, I'm gonna be really, really candid, I don't know how long I'd be able to last. I don't know when it comes down to the big decisions of survival for an extended period of time that I'd be able to, you know, like, like live the walking dead. I don't think I could do that for, like, years and then on to the rest of my life. Assuming that, of course, that this isn't the universe, like, Zombieland, where there's, like, runners. If there's runners, I'm already in the ground. Just, I'm done. I can't outpace anything like that. But if it's one of the slow, lumbering walkers... I'm okay. I can pretty much probably handle that. But emotionally, I think I'd have a hard time doing that for an extended period of time. Same with me. I mean, I've grown up on zombies. You know, I can sit here and say I know what I'm doing, but there's a real psychological thing. It's not just the physical. I mean, there's a psychological breakdown that goes into such a thing. Such as, I'm sorry if Amanda got infected. I'd be like, okay, well, do I respect her wishes and let her sit in the pasture and read French poetry until her days are done? Or do I go ahead and just put a bullet in her head then? Right. And then, you know, think of it's a family member or a friend that you lost and they come back. Would you be able to put a bullet in someone that went, one of your loved ones that has come back as, you know, a flesh ripping reanimated corpse? I mean, that's rough. But it brings up a pretty interesting topic. I don't think the world would survive very long in a zombie apocalypse. But we do okay for a while. And I'm going to say this is only because of human hubris. We are such a zombie-laden current pop culture. I think we could do it for a little while. I really do. I think enough people have seen Zombieland. Enough people have watched World War Z. I think people could do it for a little while. Again, kind of like Zombieland. But after a while, as resources start to slow, as more and more people start to die, I think that's when we're going to start getting the breakdown. I think that's when it's going to be probably the hardest for this, you know, made-up scenario. Definitely. You know, once that psychosis settles in, and it's no longer, Woo, Billie Jean, did you see me shoot off that walker's head? And it's actually a, a good god what am I going to do, I may not survive tomorrow, is when we're going to start seeing the issues. Yeah, and I 
heavens, I couldn't handle that. And that actually brought us up to a really, really good point. Weird thing with zombies is, depending on where your lore stands, is like cross-species contamination. Now, my big thing is, if a zombie bites a cow, do we then get zombie cows? Which, my dear friend TJ replied... Isn't that how we got mad cow disease? No, that's not how we got mad cow disease. (laughs) To a supernaturalist like me, which is crazy, you'd think someone who basically is in the same camp as, like, Doctor Strange would, you know, be more willing to accept a zombie cow or chicken. I'm not. I think that's absolutely ridiculous. I think it makes absolutely no sense. And we would have bigger things, I would certainly hope, to worry about that a zombie cow going grain instead of brain. Was that a pun? Does that count? It counts. All right, so we're up to three. Whereas with me, like I said, you know, Resident Evil is my passion. It's one of my favorite games, you know, not bringing up the most recent ones, but I'll discuss that on a later episode. You do get cross-contamination. One of the first creatures you actually meet in the Resident Evil series is the Severus Hound which is this Doberman that has been infected with the T-Virus. And there's nothing scarier than being in the Spencer estate. And it's all nice and quiet. And then this thing jumps to the window, comes after you. Yeah, I'll take a long, tall glass of nope with that. But you don't only get that issue. You get on the issue of, well, if there is cross-species contamination, how do you keep livestock? At that point, you lose a good portion of your food source if the apocalypse is to happen. Something I never thought I'd say, but good news for vegans, I guess? Maybe they're the ones doing this. Oh, it all makes sense now. (laughs) Then we come on to the topic that Amanda's already discussed, and that is the Walker versus the Runner. Oh, man. You know what? I'm going to go ahead and lay it out there. One of the big reasons why I don't like the Runner is, again, because I know my fate is sealed. I can't outpace anything. Leave me stationary or, you know, at a pretty fast mall walk, I'm probably okay. But just don't make me run. Uh, one thing that irritates me with the whole walker and runner thing is, I think a great example was from Dawn the Dead, the newest one. And, and you've got this very large, let me repeat that, very large, like, uh, the woman from the Cleveland show, large. Yeah, large. Who, who's bitten and dies in a wheelbarrow? This bitch gets up and starts running after everybody else when she's turned. I'm sorry, but if you could not run in when you were alive, what the hell makes you think you can run when, you, when you're dead? I mean, someone would make the endurance argument, but I'm not even worried about that. My biggest thing is, if you're honestly falling apart every, like, 30 seconds, I'm pretty sure you no longer have the, muscul- you know, the muscular scale, um, structure or the tendons to support running. Which is really code for Amanda running, screaming, nope. Yeah, that's pretty much what that's code for. Exactly. So we get on to the topic of what kills a zombie. Oh, man. That, you know, that's such a weird topic because the zombie is such a figure that because it moves from canon to canon and lore to lore, it really does depend. Again, the supernatural person in me typically would find something contrary but hilariously this is one place we can agree a double tap usually is what'll take out a zombie and you'll usually be fine with that method not only 
that or take off the head. Please sever the head. And despite what the little Asian man in the documentary we watched said, the katana is probably a very great weapon. Yeah, I don't understand that whole, the katana is hard to wield. Uh, you unsheath it and then you start hacking things. It's no more complicated than, you know, a kitchen knife. And I'd rather have Japanese steel to my side than a sawed-off shotgun. I'm no Winchester brother. Oh, you went there. I- I'm gonna ignore that for a moment. Sorry, I had to. But obviously, I mean, you. I think one of my favorite examples is Michonne from The Walking Dead. If you take the head off, it doesn't come back. Just like the cheerleader from Heroes. If you remove her head, guess what? She's not popping back up. Yeah, and that's pretty much just good practice when it comes to fighting off most things. It's just take the dead he- head off. Just, uh-uh, done. It's not necessary. Double tap, we're good. Just walk away. Exactly. Now, we can't finish this without mentioning Zombieland, especially when we're talking about the actual apocalypse, despite the fact that I absolutely hate this movie, and I was forced by Amanda and my roommate Audrey to watch this thing, but it makes a couple of good points. Yeah, Zombieland actually brings up a couple of really, really good points. So for those of you not familiar, it actually lists a pretty grounded and decent set of rules at the beginning. Watch it and listen. Not necessarily for a zombie apocalypse, but good practice, like, if a bear attacks you or something. Like, always have a weapon around you, make sure that you have ammo, double tap. I cannot emphasize enough the double tap. Cardio, if you're out of shape now, it's probably not a good idea to stay that way. Again, heaven forbid that runners are an actual reality and you have to outpace anything other than a Twinkie. My favorite one is probably check the back seat. Oh my gosh, that is such a friggin' horror movie trope. And I'm so glad that they say check all these things because it's so obvious and you think that you would do that by now. But I love most of all that it brought up the whole psychological part of it. That if the girl you like suddenly becomes a zombie, if your family member, I mean, think about that. And it really, I think it did it in a very, very smart way, where there was a lot of emotion without it being emotional. Wait, you said you think by now everybody should be doing this. You mean I'm the only one who checks my back seat for Pyramid Head? I mean, if Pyramid Head's coming, I'm already in the road laying there and waiting to die. I'm I'm not going to try to outrun that at all. That's... <laughs> destiny right there. If I'm driving in the fog and I hear a siren, I'm pulling over and laying in the road. That's 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 God calling me home. I'm not gonna fight that. <laughs> well, in honor of Halloween, Amanda had a really good idea that she's regretting now. But we took a quiz to see how long we last in a horror movie. Oh, I knew this would come back to bite me in the tush. <laughs> well, Amanda. I only survived, like, 60 minutes, and really because I was trying to save everyone. Forgive me that in my cautious nature that I decide not to yell, you know, running around the house, by the way, I'm here, if there's anyone here, out of a bush or something. I feel really, really cheated. And then you've got me. I last the entire 86 minutes. I am the lone survivor, probably because I pushed Amanda in front of Pyramid Head. Yeah, knowing that Pyramid Head would be, like, the one thing I refused to fight, he probably was willing to use me as a human shield. So, at least I get to die with Valor. Not to mention, you've got a pretty cool story to tell in the afterlife. 
Yeah, but if only Constantine's there to listen to it, it probably sounds a little ridiculous, don't you think? You act like you're going to be doing a lot of talking to Constantine when Constantine's there. Maybe Crowley will listen. So, this is obviously something that we obviously love, and it's... The whole world loves it. I mean, this has been... We've had zombies since the Epic of Gilgamesh all the way to World War Z. I mean, heaven help us from homunculus to runner. We've always had this in our mythos and in our pop culture. And I think as we get into more scary and interesting and complicated times, we're only going to see more and more of the zombie. So keep your eyes open and always check the backseat. Please, please check the backseat. Yeah. Have a super happy and safe Halloween, everyone. Be careful. And again, if you're in the fog and you hear the siren, run and duck for cover. So this is Amanda signing off. And this is Taylor. Good night.